And we are live with our 200th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Super excited to be back today uh, for our 200th episode. It's quite a little... Uh, um, accomplishment i guess for for ken and i even though it's been super fun for 200 episodes and to have back our first guest ever as well jerry um you know we're gonna start trying to try some new stuff uh for instance this episode will be sponsored by redpoint security right um who is uh that's basically my company right like let, let's be honest right uh, but we've sponsored for a number of years, but we're going to start recognizing more of the people that are contributing to the podcast as well. So check out Redpoint Security if you have assessment needs, application security assessment needs. Um, otherwise, Ken and I will be at KernelCon. That's the big announcements that we've got today. I'm going to post the link. Um, we're going to be training doing practical secure code review there. The DEF CON trainings, for those of you that were going to attend the, the DEF CON training in in Seattle or Bellevue has been postponed. Um, so that's going to happen later this year. It sounds like November, December timeframe. Instead, they had some um, logistical issues that popped up, so they've postponed. So instead, Ken and I are going to be back at KernelCon back in Omaha. So we're excited to be there. It was great last year. Um, the team there is great. The, the conference is super fun. We'd encourage anyone to go. This is a great opportunity to get the course for, uh, you know, a decent price as well, um, as, as well as support KernelCon at the same time. So it sounds like we'll all three of us be at KernelCon. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, outside of that, Ken, I don't think I have any other announcements at this point. Do you have anything else um, you want to add? I, I don't think anybody watching this podcast will be there, but in the event that you happen to be at Front Runners um, JavaScript uh, Node Conference next Friday, I will I will actually be there. Um, it's funny I was looking at the schedule, and one of the uh, the awesome engineering leaders I work with at GitHub pretty closely. Um, I think we were working together on like the Code Spaces project. Anyway, she's going to be the keynote there, so I'm super stoked about that. So, anyways, if you're going to be at Frontrunners JS conference next Friday, let me uh, hit me up uh, either on Slack, DM on Twitter, or whatever, and uh, I'll, we'll catch up. Sweet, um, good. Well, yeah, let's dive into it. Uh, Jerry, what have you been up to yeah. lately, buddy? Oh, a lot, <laughs> lot of work. Uh, you know, we're still at Cisco, still doing the Cisco thing, so I'm really enjoying that and. Just kind of keeping up with the news and, and seeing where everybody's going and kind of watching some of the growth in the startup space. Um, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people are, are launching. Um, saw a story that said that maybe this was because of all the layoffs, but I think most of these that I'm seeing come out of have been around for a while. So I don't think we're seeing that that layoff bump yet, but maybe we'll see that that layoff bump here, you know, in the next six to 12 months. But a lot of people are starting a lot of, cool things and, and it's kind of interesting to see the the wheels start to turn down there at the lower level and try to figure out what's going to be that next you know unicorn for lack of a better term yeah i i, I mean it, it seems to always happen when the layoffs when the layoffs hit right because the engineers get together and decide huh well maybe we don't want to go look for a job or while we're waiting and trying to interview we're just going to start building something I, I mean, I know Ken and I are very much on that, you know, that same kind of path, right? Like the second that you start to, you have some extra time, you start to explore those other ideas. Um, I mean, you know, it's the same thing. Like I posted your site up there, like the CVE analysis that you've done is pretty awesome as well. Um, I, but I don't know, right? Like, I, yeah, I, I haven't necessarily heard, but I'm not too tied into the developer side of things in the tech community. So it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, and it's hard for people, especially people come from an open source background, right? Like I, I deal with that quite a bit. Like you have an idea and you're like, I could just do this and throw it on GitHub right now. Or is this something that I should keep in my back pocket and maybe maybe try to turn into something? So I, I think there's a lot of a lot of thought around that, right? Like what is what's good for just giving back and, and what should I try to to turn into something that that is profitable or might be a business for me. Because I think what we see is a lot of people 
kind of trip down that road into it's going to be open source, but I also want to try to run a business off of it. There, there haven't been that many successful in those kind of hybrid things. Docker is trying to be that, but we've seen the yeah. way that they've had to pivot hard to be kind of a, a pay for model and people aren't, aren't too thrilled with that. It's funny you say that. Cause I've had to, uh, not had to, I, I've gone down the route. Um, James and I talking to different people, uh, in about the product space. And that's the same warning that everybody gives is like, don't, don't like try to like start off with open source stuff and then pivot into uh, paid for. It's just a, and actually Justin Collins, I want to say has a talk. I'll dig it up here on um, lessons learned with Brakeman and trying to go from that open source to paid model. So I'll post that, that link, but uh, it's just, you know, everybody seems to agree with that, that it's a very difficult proposition uh, to make. So, Yeah. Well, I mean, we've even seen that too. I mean, I know GitHub has tried to like, oh, you want to reward developers, you know, through, you know, the GitHub platform, be able to pay for that. But like, and I know you probably don't have as much insight into that anymore, Ken, but it would be interesting to talk about, um, you know, how many projects actually actually get sponsored through GitHub, right? And what, what, mm. that, what that feedback looks like. I I mean, there was recently that one library, Core.js or whatever it is, that there was the big discussion around that developer who basically makes no money off of it, but it's a core project for basically anything that's out there that uses JavaScript, right? Um, and, you know, you know, he's had hardships and other things. There's probably more like personal things that go into it, but it really opens your eyes as far as, hey, how much can you actually make coding an open source project because it, it seems like people just, you know, they'll do a one-time donation, but then that's it. Right. Feels more like mm -hmm. the uh, public broadcasting model where you have to beg for funds. Right. That's, you know, I don't know. <laughs> We're once well, again coming to you trying to ask for monies. <laughs> yes. No, it's not great. You're right. At least on Sorry, PBS, you expect it though. I mean, it's hard. Uh, so many people have built business models around using open source software. Apache's a prime example, right? Linux cloud providers wouldn't exist without the ability to spend up, you know, hundreds of thousands of free web servers with no licensing restrictions, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's well, and it's interesting because I was looking at the. Uh, I was looking at the model for SEMGREP and uh, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. They have, so the engine is open source um, written in OCaml, the rules provided by the community, as well as the rules that are explicitly deemed, you know, community rules. Uh, those are all under the LGPL uh, 2.1 license, but the rules created solely by SEMGREP, those are the ones that you pay. I mean, that's part of, uh, numerous things you can pay for with SEMGREP. That one is uh, LGB, LGPL 2.1 with common clause so that you can't resell any of their specific rules. So theirs is an interesting model in that part of it is definitely for sure open source, but then they're like the, the cooler things that are definitely not open source. You know, if and they I, have to encrypt, know. do they encrypt those rules or anything? So like they're, they're non fungible. So I can't really tell if, to what they are i'm actually not sure i'd have to it may even be a thing that you have to go in through semgrep's portal to get their yeah. custom rules but i'm not sure that's the case uh i have to look um yeah i yeah I, I, yeah I haven't played with those enough or i haven't dug into them enough to to tell you what the what they actually look like from a code perspective um i don't know i i mean you know when you look at a lot of the you know, the security space, right? Like there's definitely that freemium route that people go, right? Which is what SEMGREP, it feels like, feels more like a freemium product, right? Like they say it's open source, like, and it's OCaml and you can check it out, but it's such a niche tool that it, it is more of a, okay, here's the free version. Here's the rules that are community. And if you want the dashboard, you want all the features around it, then that's, that's also a, that's the SaaS product that's being sold. Um, and so, but they've, they've kind of always had that, right? Like that's, that's been what they've gone through. They didn't go with, okay, we've only got the SEMGREP, like, you know, 
open source version and then waited three years and then tried to launch into the, the, the other space. Right. Yeah. So, and, and maybe that's why it works a little bit better than, you know, some of the other projects, but it's hard to say. Selling rule sets is something that I found to be really hard because they're all basically the same. So, you know, if you're talking about web app rule sets or firewall rule sets, nobody has like a huge lead in that space they're they're basically all either table stakes or community property right like cisco doesn't have a giant lead in, in detecting brute force ssh over over one of our competitors or or vice versa so so that's when when you start talking about oh i'm going to build something and it's rules based i'm like yep your your product has to have some feature some hook that is is much more advanced than just the rules yep yeah, I think, and this is this is kind of like, wait, let me share this real quick. It also, this is good for, I think, breaking it down um, in terms of the, the pricing. So uh, let me add this to the screen. Yeah, so it's interesting. Let's just, uh, so it's actually the rules management. So you can't resell the rules. So the rules are available. It looks like all rules. They're re- available in the registry and uh, you just can't like sell those in your product. So you can't like make money off of their rules that they wrote community rules are fair game. The engine's fair game, but then rules management. And that makes sense. I think when you talk more about like change control, change management type stuff, you know, where an auditor wants to see that certain things get run inside your, uh, your testing space, um, findings and PR comments also make sense. Like an automated bot that drops comments. So it's like, to your point, there are more, uh, and then as we go over, there's more, there's more things, right. Um, so to your point there, Jerry, it's not really the rules they're selling. It's the more advanced features. <clears throat> so, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, that's a lesson learned, right? I, I don't know. I started going through a, um, Justin Collins uh, presentation because it's been a while and I was like, oh, that's right. I remember him talking about this. Um, you know, how difficult it actually was to make that transition and, and you know, how we ended up, yeah. But I don't, I don't know if you would take that same route, right. If you were to do it again, I um, can tell you, I don't, I, I think it would be, he would not. <laughs> he would yes. Not. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, he, he would. Yeah. Monetize or yeah. Keep yeah, it. For those guys who said I can't eat clout, right. Like, <laughs> From 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 a, a historical perspective, like if anybody remembers, you know, about we'll say ten years ago, it was when uh, the idea of Code Climate and Brian over at Co- Helm Camp at Code Climate was like, mm, maybe there's a platform that I can, you know, hook into people's GitHub repos and you know, I can do some linting on things, and then that linting turned into like, uh, what about the security stuff and what what existed and what did Brian know? He knew Ruby on Rails, right? So a lot of the linting was around Ruby on Rails and all, and then it was security, security for Ruby on Rails, but that security was Brakeman under the hood. So at the time that Justin like created this product, everybody could run it on their machines, all this goodness, to pivot into the cloud was problematic because Brian had already said, you know what, I'm going to build this platform that not, does, not only does uh, uh, security stuff in the cloud, but it focuses a lot on your code complexity, your, you know, yeah. bunch of different statistics about your code quality kind of kind of stuff so anyways that's the brief history on that one and why it was <laughs> difficult to make a jump after having released that open source agent hmm. yeah well i you know for those listening like this this was not on our agenda today to talk about <laughs> so this is <laughs> this is how things go on the podcast for us right you guys have an agenda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but yeah. I mean, it, it is. I, I, here's what I'll say too. Like, you know, cause you had, you had mentioned this Jerry about, you know, I'm not sure if it, if necessarily uh, layoffs are the, the motivating factor, maybe they're not. And for me, I can just speak to my personal story and, and, and James, James is a little bit too. Like, no, we, um, no, that, yeah, you're right. Layoffs had nothing to do with it. A bunch of other reasons can get into it another time, but, Layoffs had nothing to do with it. It just happened to be that at the moment of jumping off, that stuff was kind of occurring. So I imagine it's probably like this for a lot of other people. Funding is hard to get, as you guys know right now. Funding is very hard to get. Um, however, if you can solidify it, it is like a great time to do it, I think. Um, and also, this is my personal 
opinion and I don't know if it's representative or correct, but I also think like, you know, the three of us and our peers are reaching that age where, you know, we've seen the good and the bad, a lot of the bad. And I think all of us like kind of have an idea of the things we'd like to see be done better. And now we're in that position to go and attack those problems, whether that's, you know, career, finance, whatever it might be, we're in a position for one reason or another to go and, you know, have that, that, uh, I don't know, that freedom to go chase those uh, problems. So uh, anyways, that's just my take on, on it. I don't know what you're, you know, what you think, Jerry, I think that's more important. What, what do you think? I think if you can get in as a founder, it, it's perfect time to do it. And I think that some of the job instabilities are, are running people out of the, you know, out of, is it FANG now? Or have they changed the, the acronym again? Um, I don't you know, know. Facebook, Alphabet, Netflix, and I, I don't, whatever, you know, yeah. back into, back into startups. I, I think if you're going to a startup as an employee, you have to realize and you should treat the equity you get at a startup as as worth zero dollars, right? I wouldn't go in as just a regular employee to a startup and and count my my equity as anything. But you know, it's a good time and, and layoffs kind of get people thinking, hey, maybe, you know, maybe my job at Microsoft or Google or who or anybody else who's laid off is super secure. So maybe I can go do something that I, I enjoy more, might enjoy more. And and make a jump to a startup and, and start building stuff. Um, it's it's a really interesting time. And I'm really, like I said at the beginning, I'm looking forward to seeing these kind of projects kind of start building out and starting to become more, you know, more and more public. Um, I've been doing a little bit of angel investing, you know, recently. And I, and I love angel investing because it's the most honest investment ever. It like, like you talk to the people and it's like, yeah, you can give us $10,000, but there's like a 0% chance you're ever seeing this, this money <laughs> again, money right? Back. Yeah. Like, you know, you go to your regular financial advisor, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, 4 or 5%, um, you know, you, is what we're average. So, you know, if it's bad, you might lose a little bit. You go to do an angel investing and get like signed papers. I know the risk of this. Mm-hmm. I'm likely to see none of this, this money ever again. And, and so... I find myself investing in stuff that I think is just neat and and has a future, right? It's almost like, like you said, it's giving back. It's like, okay, I have a little bit now here, go and try to build something cool and like keep me informed of of what's going on in this startup space. Oh yeah. 100%. And as somebody who has taken angel investment as of late, (laughs) uh, you know, I can tell you that, uh, yeah, it is. It's a very honest conversation. And at the same time, like every party wants to make that money back for those people. Right. Uh, but yeah. you're right. It's a very like it's a very blunt conversation. It's like, yeah, there's who knows what the odds are of, of any of that ever coming back to you. Re- realistically, you're just kind of kind of putting it out there and, and hoping it uh, returns. Uh, to I, mean, you. I don't know if a lot of people know, but if you're like interested in getting started in this, there's a website called Angel List where you can go and just like they start the minimums at like 500 bucks and you can just kind of like get into a bunch of different, uh, I think, I don't know if they're cohorts or what, but like some say, Oh, I just want to do, uh, you know, medical startups, or I just want to do finance startups. And you can just kind of stick your, your, you know, stick your toes in a little bit and start filling it out, start seeing deal flows. And it's kind of an interesting way to kind of, keep your fingers on the pulse of what's going on in startup and, and who's doing what, especially if you want to kind of expand outside of our, our security bubble. Yeah. Sorry. I'm looking at that angel list website too. That's pretty interesting. So, so to that point, right? Like, so that's what you're using Jerry then as, or it's one of the sources to actually see what's up and coming and what, what people are trying to get funding for. Yeah, I mean, I, I have I have contacts with with some some regular VCs, but a lot of times I just look at at Angel List and I'm in some different cohorts who are focusing on on different things, and, and you just get emails as like, hey, we're we're looking at this startup. Here's their pitch deck. Would you like to come in on the funding round? And they try to you know raise between normally between fifty and two hundred fifty thousand dollars, kind of combined between a group of people, and then and then they get in. At, at the at the 
seed round. So interesting. There's a book I, I made exactly zero dollars back on all my investment. <laughs> just, to be, just to be totally clear here, <laughs> my rate of return is negative one hundred percent at this point. So <laughs> you're still looking for that unicorn that's going to return, yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that's the the typical angel investment like strategy, though, right? Like, or even series A, like the first round is you realize that a lot of those bets are not going to pay off, or a lot of the, those investments, like it may be a good idea, but the conditions aren't right. You know, maybe the competition is stiffer than they expected. Maybe there's some overlap, and there's just not a need. It's like there's so many elements that go into the successful startup startup that. Uh, you just can't predict, right? You're just hoping that one of them is going to take off. So yeah. eventually, hopefully it'll work out, right, Terry? Yeah, one of my mentors said, you know, divide by 10. If you have $10,000, you want to do an angel investing, don't give one person 10 grand. Give 10 people $1,000 a piece. And, and yeah, you're, you're just playing the odds. You're playing, you know, for lack of a better term, roulette. But you also <laughs> get to, to get some insight into these companies because when you do, do go in, you do get to see their pitch deck. You do get access to to their founders or whatever. So you kind of get to see what people are building and kind of an inside look at what the future of, of software is going to look like. Cool. A lot yeah. of machine learning and uh, YOLO. That's what it's the future looks like. <laughs> yeah. Chat, chat GPT and YOLO nowadays. <laughs> right? I'm just waiting uh, for chat. GPT but for to become the next thing, right? Like it's like Twitter but for, yeah. 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 That's, that's uh, all right. RSA, the next RSA. Let's make predictions. Yes, that's, 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 that's what everything's going to say. <laughs> yeah. I did, by the way, drop a link to a book called Venture Deals. I might have mentioned this on the podcast. So apologies if I did already uh, or not. Maybe it's good to reiterate. Uh, but yeah, Venture Deals is a great book. If you haven't read it, it explains. Well, a lot of things besides strategy, besides the human uh, kind of components to it and all of that, those aspects, it also literally breaks down kind of like the terms that you'll see in a term sheet and kind of the, the, the acronyms and the, and the things that you need to know. Um, it's, it's, I, I like to think it's kind of, it reminded me kind of like that Web App Hackers Handbook for AppSec. That's kind of what that reminds me of for like people that are doing, going the VC route. So anyways, highly recommend. Time to find YOLO tech. Yeah. That's... <laughs> well, there's plenty of it out there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So oh, where cool. are you going to be going besides KernelCon next, Jerry? Yeah. Uh, RSA besides San Francisco is kind of next on, on kind of the list. I was just thinking about that, you know, between about middle of December to the end of January is pretty, pretty dry on conferences. I think that feels like the downtime of, we have some some Cisco events spread around the Midwest that I'll be getting to, but you know, publicly I'm going to KernelCon and then we're gearing up for a pretty big, you know, B sides and RSA for, for Cisco Secure. So I'm really excited to get out for that. And then then all the summer stuff starts right after that. How's that transition been for you going from, you know, Kenna to now, you know, this 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 kind of role that you play now at Cisco? You know, I'm just curious how to kind of catch up on, on everything. Yeah, it, it's different. I, I, I enjoy the role I'm doing now. It's not a startup. Um, it's the difference between working at a 70,000 people company and working at a 70 people company, right? Like I used to, to DM my boss and say, Hey, I'm going to go to London for, for a business meeting. Like our, our salesperson over there wants me to come over and I'll get a thumb up. And that, that was my <laughs> approval. Right. Like, like, that was literally what Ed would send me for my proof. It's not that way. You have to, you know, go through the paperwork. There's, there's bureaucracy people, but you know, it's, it's not terrible. It's, it's just scaled different because it has to be for, for that many people. So, you know, it's interesting days. I miss the startup culture. So that's why I do a little bit of angel investing on the side so I can still be there. And then I, you know, I still have my side projects that I can, can dig into and, and, you know, code without having to go through you know four layers and, and a review process if i, if I, if I just want to commit to main on on github on my own stuff i can and, and no one can stop me you know it's funny because i've 
I, I was told, and there's somebody in, in particular who, who definitely watches the podcast who I talked to, and I was like, you know, kind of talking about their, you know, their, uh, their reasons for leaving their job. And they were like, um, so basically I said, you know, they prefer startup culture. And then I'd heard that echoed by others as well. And I didn't really understand it um, when I first heard it. And now I get it. And now I get why I say that is, you know, there's like, there's pros and cons for both, right? Like, I feel like there's a, the obvious pro for a big corp is usually better benefits, uh, more stability, um, better 401k, like for financial long-term stability, it usually uh, feels a lot better. And then of course, um, in terms of the actual work itself, um, a lot more compartmentalized. You, I feel like you can, uh, I could work 24 hours a day or I could work nothing, but the nothing would lead to the company's demise. Right. So for me at this stage at a startup, it's like, yeah, you know, you kind of, uh, there's nowhere to hide, right. The work has to be done. I, I will say in a bigger company, you can kind of compartmentalize that work a lot more. You can kind of slide through. And then in a, like a, a, a startup, it's, it's interesting though, because the, the same flip side of that is that everything you do matters, right. It's actually important. And, um, the benefits, yeah, the 401k, all that stuff, not, not necessarily there. The excitement is there every single day. Everything you do matters every single day. Um, and you're doing hard things that are complex and that's fun. Right. So there, I, I kind of, and the culture, the culture is very different. Um, and to your point, you can pivot on a dime and start working on something important and you don't need anybody to tell you that's okay or whatever. It's just like, you know, this needs to be done and people will be happy when you go to demo it. And so it is a very different vibe startup versus a corporation or we know that it's a bit a different vibe, but in terms of why people prefer startup, I understand completely why people prefer startup is what I'm trying to say. And I, I think if you, thing. I think if you drop all the, all the financial and the stability side, it gets down to what people thought agile would be right. Like in a startup, you might actually like go from spinning up an EC2 instance, installing Apache, getting a certificate, fixing the security group rules, and then writing the website and deploying it. Right. There's no company that that's of any size whose job would be to like okay i'm gonna do everything in this stack but at a startup you might go you you know you might be responsible for everything in that kind of full stack development that that i think that people want to be involved in and that's kind of what drives people from bigger companies back to the startup and when they say oh i like the startup culture i, I think a lot of it is is the freedom to be able to work from you know from a blank GitHub repo all the way to a product that you can demo without having to hand it off fifteen times? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I saw that when Microsoft acquired GitHub, it wasn't that they overnight changed our culture and people were unsatisfied with culture, but we did lose a lot of developers. And the reason was, well, of course, they had more financial freedom at that point too. But I think uh, that wasn't really from from what I could t tell, that had nothing to do with it. it. Had everything to do with the second you have more money and more resources, and more people. To your point, the work changes, and the work's not what it used to be. And you have you don't have the opportunities to expand your skill set and develop yourself, and those you know get all that experience and do all those fun things uh, the same way you do as soon as you have an influx of cash. So it's not even like, yeah, I totally see that point, one hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like there's pros and cons involved with, with either space, right? Like to your point, Ken, like being in a startup or being in a small company, like the stress levels that are induced on a five person team are way different than somebody who's specialized and who's, Hey, I'm, I'm responsible for this one library and it needs to be updated on a quarterly basis. And right. Like, you know, <laughs> we're making it as efficient as possible, but right. Like, if I don't make those changes, then the business still goes on and I still get paid. Right. Like that, that that's it. Right. That kind of churn um, and the stress that goes along with it is one of the things that you've got to take into account. Right. There's people that, that can't handle that on a daily, weekly basis. Um, and I find myself even having cycles within that. Right. Like there's times that it just feels unbearable. And at other times it's, you know, it's okay. Right. Like it works out, but there's, there's a lot of stuff that I have to do on a daily basis running a business that, I, you know, that's not fun. Right. Like I'll be honest, it's not very fun, but it's so it, basically, the the day. it varies from 
miserable to i'm okay (laughs) (laughs) no there's 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 good parts about it too because it is like choosing your own uh, choosing your own lane to your point jerry right like hey i get to work on the stuff that i think is cool and i can offload that other stuff and i can bring other people in uh you know but but it's my choice at that point right so an off week at a startup for, for one or two contributors means an off week for the business and yeah. off week at a big company, you know, you can observe, observe it and move on. You might, you know, miss a sprint or whatever, but like, yeah, if you're just not feeling it and you're, you know, you're one of five at a startup, you, you're lost 20% of your, of your valuation, right. Or uh, not your valuation of your, you know, process that week. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's it. Yeah. yeah. It's it. it it's an interesting, interesting problem. Sorry, Ken, go ahead. Oh, not at all. I was just going to say, but the flip side of all of this is that Jerry, you have, when you, when you have Cisco behind you, you have, you know, a wider reach for, you know, the, the things that really need to be said that are important inside of the industry, the things that need to be done. I feel like, so that's one really big pro is you have, you have that backing and that reach, um, which you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. And I feel like you've been using it to, to, to good effect, uh, yeah. which you. brings us to the CVE world that you've been living in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Finally. CVEs, <laughs> what we were going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're getting there. We're talking about it. It's all good. Round about getting there. So that the, latest yeah. post, right? Um, so I, I posted your, uh, um, your site, Jerry, um, but the, the most recent analysis for the 2022 list, right? Uh, my first, my first question to you is, what stands out? Hey, like, what is it that you find most interesting? It's really, it's it's not the growth. It it's where it's growing. And and I've thought about this, and I, I would go back and rewrite that blog post a little bit if I if I had a chance. Um, basically, I, it feels like all the big people are are at capacity, right? Like you're not seeing a big growth in the Microsoft vulnerabilities, the Apple vulnerabilities, even the Google vulnerabilities year over year. Where we're mm-hmm. seeing the growth is uh, on these startups who are basic. They're, they're startups who are basically around to publish CVEs. That's their that's their whole kind of gig. The VolDBs, the the hundred dot devs, right? Like and and to some extent, even the GitHub security advisories. Their stated purpose is to make it as simple as possible to, to get a CVE and to kind of move that out of the rarefied air back into more of an, uh, an attainable process for, for average people and average software. Okay. I, I, I could definitely see that. I mean, I know when that first came out, Ken and I discussed it a little bit on the podcast, and that was one of the things that I like. I, that stood out to me was the number of vulnerabilities that were coming from other sources nowadays. Right. And I, I mean, and that was part of opening it up. Like we were expecting that to happen. Uh, but seeing hunter.dev on there was, was interesting um, to me because it is like that open source product um, or um, not necessarily open source. I mean, but it, they are a common um, platform for reporting bugs and they have a whole bunch of different projects that they target. Um, they're trying to consolidate that process. Um, cool. So uh, along those lines, right? Like, is there anything that, that is surprising in that fact to you or anything in there in that data set? So, so I, I'm on the automation working group for MITRE and, I, and I, I like MITRE. I think what they're doing is great. So what I'm going to say is it isn't directed at them particularly, but I think that we're starting to see weaknesses in the CVE format because of what data is required to have a publishable CVE isn't enough for most people to find useful, right? 100.dev and vol.dev, they're publishing CVEs that meet all the requirements, but they don't have enough data. Sometimes 100.dev will post a CVE that just says, there's a vulnerability in this GitHub commit and have the GitHub commit hash in the, in the description. Um, okay. Yeah. It's that's fine, but I, I have no idea what that is. And when, and when you think about it, that description is normally about 40 or 50% of all the data in a CVE. And it's, 
it's super hard to to find a lot of value in that. And then a lot of people don't understand that that MITRE publishes the CVE, but then it moves over to to NIST and the NVD to add add the data that a lot of us look at, like the CBSS score and the CPEs. And it's hard for them to, to properly score and to properly add CPE data to some of these other, other vulnerabilities from these 100 undevs and these community type CNAs because it's not in their lane, right? They've got really good at adding CPEs for Microsoft, Google and stuff because it's all built out. But, but you know, the data is, they're trying their best, but it's hard because the data is expanding. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this probably goes back to Mike. Like, I, I mean, I have a hard time, like when I'm as a, as a pen tester, as a consultant, as somebody that's looking at code and I find a CVE that's associated with a specific and, you know, whether that source is Microsoft or whether it is hunter.dev or whatever it, or what, what may be actually taking that information and representing it to management or a technical, or, you know, or a client as this is the impact of this CVE. And I know this is a lot of stuff that Kenna was doing, right. Trying to map that out, but I just feel like that process from what you're, what I'm getting here is it's getting harder and harder to actually do that impact and risk analysis when, okay, like, great. There's a commit hash. I've got to go review this whole commit to figure out actually what's happening and where the vulnerability is. And then at that point, is that something that's being used in my product or in my cot, you know, in my application, that it's a, it's a whole like analysis stream that I, like, I just don't have the time for like yeah. clients not paying me to do that. And, and, and another thing that ends up, especially in open source projects that aren't their own CNA is that they don't get a voice in whether a CVE is published a lot or not. I know this was kind of a, a knock on GitHub a little bit. Like if, if, you know, if Ken found something and something that I wrote on GitHub, he could file a, a CVE request and get a CVE for it. And I may never know, right? Like unless somebody opens a, a PR or, or an issue in my, my account, I would never know. And then, then if it's wrong or if you think it's wrong, you're, you're on the back foot there and you're having to then fight against that, that CVE being open. If you're like, no, that's not how that's worse. So that's not a real vulnerability. You already have the CVE published and then you have to go through the whole trying to get it rejected uh, stage, which isn't, isn't fun. So that's a lot harder than being Microsoft and getting to control and, and the CVE publishing coming at the end. A lot of these open source projects, the CVE publishing is coming at the very beginning, and then you're you're running backwards to try to get it fixed for yeah. free because you're you're not getting paid to to write this open source code. So basically, you're guilty until proven innocent. Yep. Um, yep. In that case, that's interesting. Do they? I well, I guess no. It, yeah, because if it's public, oh man, yeah, that's that's yeah, it's not a good look. I can I can see why that would be problematic for sure so we're, we're, we're doing uh, we're not ready to release the research yet but we're looking at it right the number of cves that have fixes and, and the number is coming down quite quite dramatically because normally you have here's a cve we can find out where the patch is a lot of these open sources were like here's a cve uh no patch right like like there's no no patch and that number in, in 2022 and 2023 skyrocketed hmm. yeah that, that makes sense why why it would uh, sorry, yeah, I got distracted I, by somebody delivering something to the house. No worries. <laughs> why he's, uh, yeah. So uh, along those lines, right? Like, so if the the patches like that, yeah. If it, if there's no patch for the CVE, right? Um, are we starting to see like a degradation then of the value of a CVE database? Right? Like, I I, yeah. I mean. Like that, that's always the question that I get is, right, especially when you're doing dependency check or any of the, you know, dependency analysis for CVEs uh, is most of the time it ends up being a, oh, we're going to put that on the backlog because, yeah, again, like from a risk perspective, we don't know what that actually equates to and nobody's actually exploiting that because whatever, right? Like it's, um, yeah, prototype pollution or whatever it is, right? 
Yeah, a lot of it's that, and a lot of it is is legwork that people a don't know because they're not kind of experts in in the process. So, say Hunter.dev filed a CVE for for an open source project that I have, right? And then they opened a opened up a an issue, and I fixed it. That doesn't automatically NVD is not looking at that. It's not Miter's job to fix that. If I want that that patch to be reflected on that CVE record, I then have to go and email Miter and have them add it as a reference. And so, like, you have to have a whole like if you're an open source maintainer, you have to almost be deeply dug into the CNA CVE publishing process that's really been kind of closed source and, you know, only big companies had CNA and they kind of understood how it worked to now where, you know, you really have to kind of understand to, to get that patch listed on that CVE page. Hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's kind of, cause you're bringing up a point that was in my head. I'm like, well, if, should there be some guidelines because, uh, I mean, if you're going to be a CNA, right, shouldn't there be some guidelines that you have to follow to include validation of the issue to issue a CV? Or clearly that's not the case. I mean, it sounds like you just pretty much just issue it as someone said that it's vulnerable. So I just, yeah, it's kind of honestly what it sounds like is happening. You're, you're supposed to validate it, but, you know, validation is in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, and, and I don't know anybody worse than any of these companies, but... I think a lot of it is think of a, a level one SOC analyst going through through alerts, you know, probably the same skill set going through a thousand CVE requests, right? Like you go and look, oh, that code looks like it could launch a, a cross-site scripting, right? I'm going to approve it. So, you know, you just kind of kind of move it on versus somebody who has a really deep understanding of the code base and, and can make that, that super, super, you know, important decision if it's actually vulnerable or not or if it rises to the level of needing a cve um but that's also questionable because the cve database isn't that that outsized yet it's only two hundred thousand records so you know it's still manageable by most most people it definitely hasn't got into that big data category yet so basically the, the amount of information coming in exceeds the capacity of those to validate it and so then it becomes a community validation after the fact, after it's released almost, it sounds like. Yep. Yep. Basically. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's going to be thrown to some not even, problems. A lot of times it's not even validated. Um, we, we see this, we see this quite a bit. Uh, Google was known for it, right? Like they'll say this, this vulnerability has been reported, exploited in the wild. And then you like never hear or never see anyone else reporting that it's exploited and they don't give enough information in the, in the patch to even, or, you know, in, in the CVE to even let you understand what was going on. Right. Right. That is so annoying that, that, that gets to me whenever I see that. I mean, cause it's like, how can you, yeah. How, how do you know what is, yeah. I want to know that I want to, I want to get granular as to the, yeah. as to the details. I don't want vagary. It doesn't help. It doesn't make it actionable. Doesn't make it yeah. for easy for us to validate. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so I, I mean, I always like a heat. Well, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I always go back to like, you know, what it is that I have to report. Like, if I report a vulnerability and it doesn't contain like reproduction steps, it doesn't contain actual like code as to this is how it was found, this is the area that I actually saw it. Like, I, you know, like, I don't know how I'd feel. It, it almost feels like just a, you know, a publicity grab at some point. Right. Um, right. Uh, and, and I know we see this in the bug bounty world as well, right? Like just reports because, you know, I ran a scanner or whatever it is. Like I found something that may or may not be, but I'm trying to get money or I'm trying to get publicity out of it. Um, and that that's where I have a, I start to have a problem with it. If, if it doesn't contain that sort of detail. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, I know we're not going to solve it here, right? Like it's, yeah. it's just, a, it, it's interesting to see how it's changed over the years, um, especially with the new CNAs, especially with the new process as we're, we're starting to target more of those open source apps. Um, feels like there needs to be a little bit more of 
I don't know, definition in the policy or explanation of the, of the, the process to open source developers, how they can actually get involved with it because yeah, otherwise the data is going to get worse and worse is, is kind of my take on it. Well, and, and that becomes the question, right? Do you want maximum data that that's going to be a little bit worse or do you want a really heavily regulated CBE database that, that has some extra stuff and has more data, right? Um, the Kenna model leans towards having as much data and then we do all that heavy work on the back end and, and tell you what mm -hmm. to fix. So, you know, I'm, I'm not disappointed in that model. I think that works, but you could, you know, there's, there's discussion to say, we're going to add more data points. We're going to make it harder to get a CBE, but every time we get a CBE, it's going to be top notch and something that you actually need to pay attention to. Um, there's a little bit of both ways. I mean, I, I go back and forth and, and I don't know, you know, depending on the day, depends on which way I, I feel, but, you know, I, I never mind having more data, but at the same time, I would like to have the best data possible. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I guess in general, in that model where more data is better than, than having, presumably having more CNAs, like, and there's a bar, there should be a bar for, for being a CNA um, is, is a good value add in, in that model. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it depends on that. This really comes down to, to, to government officials. And I get to talk about this. I think it's what I'm talking about at Colonel Con, right? Like sweet NVD is, is really the linchpin in this for most people. <laughs> and they're, and they're funded by the U S government and, and they are what makes this go, makes CVE go from, from useless to useful, right? Like if they don't do the CWE correctly, if, if they don't really like lean in and get the CPE data correctly or for the CBSS right, um, that, that's when it breaks down, right? Because we really look at them to, to get those, to get that data. I think when people look at, at CVEs, they understand that MITRE publishes them, but MITRE just kind of publishes the framework and nobody really uses the NVD or uses the CVE until NVD has gotten their, their analysis done on that. And, you know, it's taken them a little bit longer. I think they're about at over eight days for analysis on a CVE today, but you know, they're, they're trying and they're doing their best. I personally, I'm probably as, as plugged in as anybody. And I can't tell you how many people, how many humans are doing, are doing that work, but, but it has to be, be thankless work. And, and, you know, they're just at it all the time. Yeah. I mean, and the interesting thing about CVs is like how the weird way, I mean, not weird, but the, the ways that they've, I mean, I'm sure you can talk to, talk to some of this, but um, you know, initially like the, the only places I really see CVs are like, um, you know, a scanner if it had like results would 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 say like, oh, here's the CV associated with it. Um, and then I guess the other side would be like when when vendors said, hey, you need to upgrade because we have we have some sort of uh, CV. But now there's all this tooling out there, especially around the supply chain security stuff and S bomb and all of this. And there's just, I mean, there's a plethora. I mean, even bug bounty uh, platforms tend to tend to tie at least use some level of. Uh, um, CVE and CVSS, uh, you know, references. Um, I mean, it's just, it's everywhere now. And so I don't know, like, are there any things, I guess the one question would be like, are there any ways or areas that have surprised you that you've learned about that these things get used uh, in your, in your travels? I, I talked to a ton of people. CVEs are, is a security industry's Rosetta Stone, right? No matter which way you're talking, it becomes the common denominator and, and the way that we're able to decode it so you, you have to say you know here's the cve and then i can take a cve i can put it in, into a, you know to a sas or a das or i can take it and talk about a patch that i need to run it's just the issue is you just bounce back and forth and and there's nothing better than a cve to say okay here's here's what we're talking about and then from there you know, you can pivot it either way on your research, but it, but it's the only thing we have as kind of a common denominator across the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, we've got CVEs. Um, 
the the other thing that popped up in the actually in the Slack channel this last week was the CWE analysis that kind of I mean it does start to to play into that right the weaknesses that are associated with CVEs how many are actually seen um, let me post that link really quick because I wondered what your take on this was I know we were um, yeah. And CWEs, yeah. those and, listening, that's and, and I said I've loved NVD three or four times on there, right? And, and I want to say it again. I love the work NVD does. I, I think that that their CWE analysis is – their CWE uh, assignment is a little bit off and a little bit bad because so many of them fall into these into these giant just catch-all CWEs. Yeah. and. You know, I, I think 79 was the top one. I, I haven't had a chance to look at that link, but but when I ran it, like cross-site scripting had like four times as many CWE assignments as, as anything else. So, I mean, they're just trying to bucket it, but CWE is, is so wide and has so many buckets. I think it's hard for them to figure out which bucket it, it falls in. Yeah. Well, and so if you look at that, I, you don't have to look at the link right now, actually. So uh, 79 cross-site scripting is two in that. The first one is actually out of bounds, right? You know, uh, 787, um, which, you know, buffer overflows. It's basically what it, what it, it, it equates to. And I don't know. I don't know about the two of you, but like the number of times that I run into a buffer overflow on a daily basis is pretty much <laughs> at this point, right? Um, that's just the space that I play in. And so like, I have a hard time equating what's going on there in CWE and even in CVE land with what I see as a consultant and in the security space on a daily basis. And maybe it's because I'm not on the research side of things. Uh, you know, I may, I'm more in the, the tactical, the analysis of new and upcoming projects that that's the reason um, but like, I'm wondering what your take on that is that buffer overflows are still such a, a high mark, I guess. Right. Well, can I add to that real quick before Jerry responds? One thing I learned today when I was reading Jerry's, uh, article was that, and I didn't know this before, uh, until before today was that CVs get generated, not based off of the year that they were found, but based off of the year, I guess they were introduced or something along those lines. Um, but so you could have something that come, came out or no, do I have that wrong? Correct me. For, correct me here, Jerry. The year the vulnerability was discovered is supposed to indicate the CVE ID and, and not the year it was published. Right. Sorry. So people I had, get I that kind, that of, kind of tricked up because we have, yeah, yeah. We have CVEs like, like this year, there are still more CVE 2022s that have been published than CVE 2023s. That'll that'll flip around pretty soon. But like last year, we had um, the oldest CVE by identifier was three CVEs from BoldDB from Black Ice, right? Like, and I reached out to Rob Graham, and he didn't even know that they had been been published. He's like. Why is somebody releasing CVEs for software from 2011, right? <laughs> right. But I think why I, I'm kind of raising that too is like, I, I guess now that I know that it's a little inverse of what I was originally thinking, maybe this doesn't come into play, but I was thinking like, wait, maybe, um, you know, maybe it was, uh, okay. So, to, okay. So I'm just making sure I have this correct. <laughs> so, uh, if the vulnerability was made public now in 2022 for buffer overflows or 2021 or whatever, fairly recently, um, that could be just be a matter of our ability to detect buffer overflows in older software. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of answering for you, Jerry. So I'm sorry. I was, sorry. I'm just, I, when you, when you set that, that question, it started to play to my mind. Like, I wonder if that discrepancy factors into why we would see more buffer overflows now, whereas you would think there would be less given more man memory managed safe languages, what I'm trying to say. Sorry, but I'll, I should, I'm going to be quiet. You, you, you give your hypothesis, Jerry. No, no, you're right. You're, you're hundred percent right. It's, it's, they find self and it goes back, it gets back ported into software that, that's not used or hasn't been used often. And I think another thing to a thing that the top 25, that, that, that link that they Seth misses out is that, 
uh, about one third of CVEs, uh, NVD just gives up on and says, I can't bucket this, right? And it's tag NVD, no CWE info, right? That, that, that's what they, that's what they market as when, when they don't know where, where to put it. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, a, a one third, right? That's a, that's a huge number when it comes down to it. I, I, but I understand the difficulty, right? Like we find things in software all the time that we're like, oh, where do we classify this under, right? Is it one of those big buckets? Is it, you know, some business logic fly? I mean, you know, usually there's a place that you can shoehorn, shoehorn your way into. Um, but I, I realize that they're trying to be more precise than that, right? There has standards around, this is what it has to be to go into this bucket. Um, which makes me wonder how much, yeah, like how much those CWEs, like it would be interesting to analyze that one third to see, you know, if there is differences of opinion or what the, you know, what the main driver there actually is. Um, cause it's very easy to classify our buffer overflow or cross-site scripting. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. A third of it. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> WordPress scan scan is a, a CNA. That's yeah, they, yeah. They killed it. For, they were the first non what I would call non software CNA. And for two or three years, they led the led the publishing because they were finding uh, CVEs all the time and in WordPress plugins that, you know, 10 people might run, but they would, they would file a CBE for you. Hmm. Yeah. I was kind of laughing for that reason. Cause I assume that that's the reason is that there's just yeah. so much, so, so many vulnerabilities <laughs> in the WordPress <laughs> plugin space. I was like, Oh man, they had to become a CNA. Cause when you look at it, it's kind of hilarious that they're juxtaposed against, you know, yeah. Like Microsoft and trend micro and all these big behemoths that have, you know, all kinds of different software stacks. Um, they're invested in, and anyways, this is kind of maybe laugh. It's like, man, that many, that many vulnerabilities, and uh, you had to become a CNA. But anyways, sorry, sorry, WordPress friends, no, a jerk. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got Apple that has less than a hundred, and then WordPress. Like this this year, right? Looking yep. at that CVICU, and then WP Scan is almost a four hundred, right? Like you know, just like three or four times the number. Um, what does that tell you about pH? Wait, no, we won't get into that. Uh, right? yeah. We won't get into that. Yeah. We won't get into that. Yeah, you say that, but man, Laravel's got some good usage uh, for PHP frameworks. I was looking into it recently. It's actually got some pretty yeah. uptake. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does, right? And it, I mean, it's you know, it's a decent MVC, right? Um, if you you know, if PHP is the language that you use. All right. I, okay, we've been going for an hour. Um, I did have one question that's just in a completely different space for both of you before we, we call it. I, I want to make sure that we're cognizant of Jerry's time since he's giving it to us. Right. Um, so uh, a question popped up recently. Um, one of the, you know, somebody in Slack DM'd me and asked for um, favorite tokens that we search for in developer comments. And they were trying to build out a word list. So I thought that it would be a fun thing to just ask both of you, like, what is your favorite either find or like interesting comment token that you would search for in a code base? Did you send me, Seth, a article about cursing and code complex or code quality? I, I did. This is part of why it came up, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because I was going to say cursing, but then after you said that, I'm like, I don't know, because I look for that in commit messages just because usually by the time someone's figured out whatever they figured out, they're like, they're just frustrated and they just made it work. It doesn't mean it's the best. Often it means it's not. And, but so then to hear that, like the opposite, but I think they were talking about comments in code, not commit messages, which there's a difference, right? Like, yeah. um, Yeah. So, but anyways. Yeah. So, um, so basically the, the, yeah, the, uh, you know, the research that they put in was basically the code quality of code when they found curse words in the comments associated with it was better statistically from like, uh, you, know, you can go read the article, but it was better, you know, statistically from form and function and like how it was, you know, it, you know with whatever they put into it, than code that did not have curse words in it. So, I, I mean, I know that's a fun one to search for. What? 
the fact that that person put comments in at all means there's probably that just having comments is probably a good indicator of code complex or uh, I keep saying complex code quality. Sorry. Yep. Exactly. I actually, I don't look for the API keys as much as I look for the URLs. Like I found like if I'm looking like searching for the API URL is off, will often find keys because it can be named so many different things. So like if I find out if I want to get a new to an API, I'm doing an assessment. I, I go hit GitHub and, and and paste their their URL string, and then just start digging through that code. is is one of the ways that that I cool. And a lot of times, that gives you a lot of insight into to how people are using and sometimes abusing an API. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's a good that's a good call out, right? Like the URLs, like whether or not it shows up in the comments, if it is like part of a variable or whatever else. Like it starts to give you indicators pretty quickly about hard coded values and, you know, what's actually being analyzed and, you know, what people are actually using it for. So cool. Good. All right. Well, there you go, Jesse. Like we, we got curse words and we got URLs. There's, I mean, I feel like every assessment Back I get into, I built to that list. Work in yeah. progress, security, authorization, auth Z, authen, authentication, um, yeah, just a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, usually people will talk about, um, um, you know, you can even look for things like directly or, uh, look up or things like that. And usually you'll find some interesting IDOR style stuff. There's all kinds of, uh, honestly, Seth, this is something we should publish is, uh, the word list that we use during our uh, code reviews. Yeah. I, I mean, that was what, that was where the question came from is somebody was doing a code mm -hmm. review and they're like, we want to make sure we're searching for everything. And I was like, okay, here's a list that I start with, but it's so dynamic, right? Jerry, what were you going to say? Oh, it wasn't a code review, but somebody sent me a, a link to GitHub search that just searched for the name of their key bot or whatever. I don't remember the name of the surface or whatever. And they said that that's a good way to find keys because people will say, you know, GitHub keybot found found this, so we're, we're removing it, and then they don't go back and clean the clean the commit history, so, it, so it's still there. Yeah, commit histories are always fun. You'll find all kinds of like juicy goodness in, in, inside of that. Yeah, I, I and honestly, you know, along that line, right? Like, I think I find like the comments for code are interesting, but it's usually indicators of what's actually what the developer's trying to do there. But the commit history is way more fruitful from a security perspective, right? Like when you're looking for authorization changes or, you know, hacks or, you know, they're pissed off and they just wanted to make something work at 2 a.m., right? Like timings and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing, right? That would amazing. be something that, I, that'd be a class that even I would be interested in taking. Like Git is so complicated. Like I would be super interested in taking either a, a workshop or something like how to manage Git, like, you know, secure Git, like when should you rebase, right? Like when should you delete it? Like how do you handle handle that in, in a long-term term manner? Because, you know, it's always, and, and I don't know why, but it seems like the security guy always gets the issue of, uh-oh, this junior dev committed the code. So now you have to go and figure out and fight through a way to to delete all of the, the code, either figure out a way to pull this one commit or just delete every commit. Yeah. Yeah. Rewinding GitHub is so like, like you're right. Like rebase is, is, is the way, but the, the second that it's public, it's public. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which well, I can point, tell you when I, all bets are off. when I joined GitHub, like uh, back, that was um, in 2017, uh, much smaller company. I'm sure they don't do this anymore, but or maybe they do, but I doubt it. Um, so they did that. That was part of the thing is like, because everybody, including, it doesn't matter what your job was at GitHub, um, you're going to use GitHub, right? So they did that workshop on not only like, you know, how to use the platform for like discussions and issues or not just didn't have discussions, issues, co you know, comment threads and all that stuff. Um, and just how repos work and all that, but also like, yeah, some of the basics of how, how to use Git in that way. Um, just because, like I said, you've got people that are going to be like finance will host their things on GitHub. Like when you're again, going back to the beginning of this startup versus big company, right? At that time it was more of a startup vibe. So everybody operated on one place in one place because that was, that was the product. That was the company. Um, yeah. anyways, yeah, it was really, I, know, I could just it's see cool. a finance professional, like, 
oh no, I committed, you know, raises not XLS. So the, <laughs> I, have to, I have to rewind this right now. Yeah, everyone's oh, salaries yeah. and bonuses all get pushed out in an issue. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. That'd be horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> Sounds like some git spelunking isn't is in our future. So. Well, cool. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap it for today. Um, like I said, this episode was sponsored by Redpoint Security. Um, and two hundredth episode. Two hundredth episode. Um, if you're interested in sponsoring, reach out to us. Uh, info or sponsor at Redpoint or at absoluteapsec.com. And yeah. Otherwise, Jerry, thanks so much for your time today. Um, you sounds like you're time. gonna. Yeah, sounds like you're gonna be at B sides at Colonel Con. Um, any place else that uh, anything else you want to say before we call it today? No, no, I'm super glad to be here, and I, and I hope to to run into people soon. And yeah, and you know, and if you're having a startup, ping me somewhere. I'd love to to sit down and, and talk to you about about what you're doing and and get involved. So I think that's kind of where I'm I'm leaning next is doing a little bit more startup stuff. Awesome, great. All right, well, thanks everybody for listening and interacting. As always, join Slack. Uh, let us know, you know what you come up with and we'll see everybody next week. And at Colonel Con, all three. And at Colonel Con. Yes, yes. Yeah. All, right. all right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>